You bow your heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we do not care enough about you or about your Son, Jesus Christ. We have allowed our hearts to be swayed and attracted to all things of the world that make us want to indulge and make us want to excuse the indulgence of our self, our flesh. So we pray, would you send your spirit down now to us, into our hearts, that we might set our minds on the things above and not on the things of this earth. Feed us, we pray, with the bread of life. We confess with your word that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. Ignite in us a new inner appetite and relish for Jesus, and for your word, for the great meaning of the gospel. May we love Jesus better and for more reasons than we did when we first came to this place this morning. For his sake. Amen. There is in the human heart a longing to transcend everything that is weak and wrong and sad, both in ourselves and in this world. We want to get above it, beyond it all. And there is in human experience no end to our attempts at achieving that transcendence. There is the drug-induced transcendence of acid trips and fentanyl. According to some statistics, 21% of Americans, 12 and older, have used illegal drugs or abused prescription drugs in the last year alone. That's over 59 million people seeking transcendence over something. Then there's the entertainment-induced transcendence of movies, the escapism of sports. There's a technologically-induced transcendence of virtual and enhanced reality. There's the alcohol-induced transcendence of drunkenness. There's the psychologically-induced transcendence of psychotropic medications. That's not to mention the politically-induced transcendence of utopian schemes and social justice dreams. And yes, there is also the religiously induced transcendence of Zen Buddhism, Eastern mysticism, and even Christian Pentecostalism. Why this quest for transcendence? It's all over the place. Why? Well, one answer is that Naturalistic science has evicted transcendence from all acceptable worldviews, leaving the soul without hope and without God in the world. So what do you expect? Rudolf Bultmann, a theologian I don't recommend, but who has put his 
finger on the problem, puts it well. He said, we no longer believe in the three-storied universe which the creeds take for granted. No one who is old enough to think for himself supposes that God lives in a local heaven. There is no longer any heaven in the traditional sense of the word. And if that is so, then the story of Christ's ascension to heaven is done with. We can no longer look for the return of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven, end quote, as we have just sung of and hoped for in song. Because the modern worldview does not allow it. Yet in the face of this modern unbelief, we read this morning in Acts 1.11, this Jesus, said by an angel, no less, This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, what did that mean then? And what can it possibly mean for us today? That Jesus has ascended bodily into heaven. If we read the whole paragraph, as we're about to do, we'll find that Jesus' ascension enthrones him over God's kingdom to superintend the church's global witness. If you're a note-taker, that's really the only sentence you need to take down. You can take down more, but that's the main one. Jesus' ascension enthrones him over God's kingdom to superintend the church's global witness. That's the point of Acts 1, 1 through 11. Jesus' ascension enthrones him over God's kingdom to superintend the church's global witness. And in this paragraph, Jesus equips his witnesses in six ways to understand and proclaim his ascension to heaven. I'm not sure I'm going to get through all six of those. Sorry. And I need to warn you, this sermon is pretty much all about Jesus. So if you came here and you're not really crazy about Jesus, or if you came here thinking, oh, I hope this sermon is going to be about me, you're going to be really bored. I'm just warning you. But that's not my problem. (laughs) I want you to love what you discover here about Jesus. Okay? I want us to discover these things about Jesus together, and I want us to worship him for these things together. So read along with me in your Bible, silently, as I read out loud for us, Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, again, the point of that, Jesus' ascension enthrones him over God's kingdom to superintend the church's global witness. The first thing Jesus does to equip his witnesses is he proves himself for his witnesses. He proves himself for or even to his witnesses. Verses 1 to 3. Acts is Luke's sequel to his gospel. He wrote it initially in Luke 1, 1 to 4. It's a two-volume work. For Theophilus. And by addressing Theophilus in Luke 1, as most excellent, in the first volume, Theophilus is either powerful or rich, probably both. So he may not simply be Luke's audience. He may have actually financed Luke's research project for his two-volume work, which was, of course, for more people than just Theophilus to read. You don't write two volumes just for one person to read. This is for public consumption. So to mention Theophilus by name at the outset here in the, both the first and second volume may be to dedicate the two-volume work to Theophilus as his benefactor, as his sponsor, as his funder. But when Luke describes the first volume as all that Jesus began to do and teach, he implies that the sequel, Acts, is going to concentrate on what Jesus continued to do and to teach after his death, after his physical resurrection, and even after his physical ascension into heaven, Jesus is going to keep on doing and teaching. The gospel and his death and even his resurrection, that's only the beginning. Acts is also the historical record of apostolic witness to Jesus' resurrection. It only stands to reason then that the book would begin with the object of that witness, the risen Christ himself, in person, appearing to the apostles, eating with them, teaching them, proving himself physically alive after having been executed, killed on a Roman cross, and buried in a tomb. So this is not a dream. This is not a mass hallucination. This is not a ghost story. This is not a metaphor. This is real. This is historical. This happened. 
Luke says Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. It wasn't the suffering that was by many proofs. It was the presenting himself alive to them that is by many proofs. And Aristotle used that word proof for something proven and concluded as a technical term of rhetoric. So Jesus displayed these convincing, open and shut, valid for legal testimony proofs over 40 days, proving that he's actually alive. And there were a lot of these proofs. Sure, you had stories circulating in Greco-Roman culture of ghosts appearing to people, but never for weeks on end like this. I mean, this is 40 days. This is almost six weeks. 40 also communicates fullness. The apostles had full proof, and combined quantity and quality of that full proof made it foolproof, unmistakable. There's no other explanation. Jesus is alive. That is the only explanation for the witness of the apostles, and especially the suffering they endure for that witness in the rest of the book, when at the end of Luke, when Jesus is crucified, they all go running like little chickens. And one of them, you'll remember, according to John, left naked. He just let the Roman centurions have his robe because he didn't want to suffer with Jesus. And now all of a sudden these guys are preaching and being imprisoned and taking beatings for preaching Christ boldly. How do you explain that? You explain it by believing them. Jesus is risen from the dead. And it is important to Jesus, notice, it's important to Jesus himself to prove his risen humanity to his initial witnesses. Otherwise, atonement for sins would be as mythical as his death and resurrection. So before we move on, we have to know not just what is the meaning of this kingdom that he's teaching during these 40 days, but the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection in the first place. What did that mean? He presented himself alive after his suffering. What did he suffer? Why did he suffer? Well, the Bible is clear. God is our holy creator, and he is our righteous judge. He created us to know and love and serve him forever. We rebelled against both his law and his love. We would not let him determine right and wrong for us. We insisted on doing that for ourselves. We chose to get out from under his love and righteousness and to discover sin for ourselves. And that drew down God's righteous, judicial, condemning anger. And rightly so. The penalty for sinning against an eternally righteous and loving and generous and blessing God is eternal conscious torment in hell. Our rebellion deserves retribution. But God did not let our story end there. God the Father sent God the Son to suffer our penalty for our sins in our place. 
Jesus did not simply suffer the rejection of men. He suffered the wrath of God. The eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took on human flesh in the incarnation, lived a sinless life in order to please God perfectly, and then died the death we all deserved in our place for our sins. And God raised Jesus bodily from the dead in order to vindicate, to prove that Jesus did not die for any sins of his own. He did not have any sins to die for. He died for our sins. And God accepts Jesus back to his right hand in the physical ascension to prove that the Father accepts the Son's sacrificial death as our substitute. And so now all who turn from their sin and self-reliance to trust in Christ can become citizens of God's kingdom in good standing on Jesus' merits. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, and that kingdom is a kingdom of grace, forgiveness, love, reconciliation to God, and righteousness. But it is only open to those who trust and submit to King Jesus as Lord of that kingdom and Lord of all. So trusting this Jesus and this message is what it takes and what it means to be a Christian. And these proofs of life then given to the apostles, are the evidences that Jesus' death was accepted by God as our substitute, that his life was completely pleasing to God, and therefore he did not deserve to die. He died for us. We're the ones who deserve to die. And that you, sinner, can really have forgiveness and new life in Jesus' name. That's what these appearances are proving. Second, way that Jesus equips his witnesses, Jesus teaches his kingdom for his witnesses. He teaches his kingdom for his witnesses. Of all things to be talking about between the resurrection and ascension, why the kingdom of God? Why that? Why not love? Why not mercy? Why not joy? Why not compassion? Or righteousness? Or holiness? Kingdom teaching is timely because Jesus is about to ascend to the throne of God's kingdom. That's what he's going to do. In order to superintend the expansion of that kingdom through the witness of his apostles to the end of the earth. We saw last week how prominent the kingdom of God is in Luke and Acts. The gospel itself can be termed the gospel of the kingdom. The word kingdom occurs 53 times in Luke and Acts. It's a big deal to Luke. So what did this teaching of the kingdom of God look like when Jesus rose from the dead and spent 40 days on this topic with his initial witnesses? Well, it's a little bit hard to tell, but not impossible. I mean, Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus is probably a pretty good start, right? Remember how that conversation started? With the disciples lamenting three days after Jesus' crucifixion, oh, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. To restore the kingdom to Israel. We hoped he could free us from Rome, end our exile, raise us to international supremacy. We thought he was the one. And that's what Jesus is responding to when he says in Luke 24, the end of the first volume, 
Verses 25 and 27, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken in the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the, all the scriptures the things concerning himself. But notice, this is the same period that's being described to us in Acts 1, where he's teaching to us the kingdom of God. Again, in Luke 24, 44, he said, These are my words that I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And for 40 days, he's teaching in that context about the kingdom of God. In other words... Hey guys, everything that the prophets said about the restoration of the kingdom of God, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I inaugurate in my death, resurrection, and ascension. And that's what you're going to spread in your preaching from Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. That's the kingdom of God. And it's way bigger than the Gaza Strip. Some of you last week wondered why we read Obadiah 19 to 21 as the Old Testament reading for the overview sermon on Acts. I get it. I thought, that was weird. I haven't read Obadiah in a while. Well, that was because Obadiah ends with, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom. And that last paragraph of Obadiah mentions areas conquered by the gospel in the book of Acts. That's the kind of thing the risen Jesus would have been teaching his disciples about the kingdom from the Old Testament during these last 40 days. He's preparing them for how the kingdom will be expanded and redefined in trans-ethnic, transnational terms. Jesus reigns from heaven over all authorities for the good of his church and for the spread of his glory. This is what it means to Jesus for him to be king. And so this is what it means for us to call ourselves by his name. He reigns over all things and over all things in me and my life. To be a Christian is to obey this risen Lord Jesus as king of God's kingdom, to rejoice in his rule even when it contradicts my will and my desires and my appetites. And it's to trust in his wisdom and power. So you see how you cannot be a Christian unless you believe in the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus and his physical ascension to God's right hand in heaven to rule over God's kingdom and over you. You can't be a Christian unless you believe those things and obey them. So ask yourself, friend, is Jesus merely or mainly my friend, my life coach, my therapist, my psychologist, is he just another coping mechanism for the hard things in life? Or is Jesus your king? Your king. Third, Jesus picks his starting point for his witnesses. 
he picks his starting point for his witnesses in Acts 1, 4 through 5. Now, I don't have as much on this, but I do want to point you to a couple of Old Testament verses to help put this starting point of Jerusalem in context. He's not starting from Rome. He's not starting from the center of the Roman Empire. He wants to start from Jerusalem. He's not even starting from just outside Jerusalem where he is right now at the Mount of Olives. He wants them to go back to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the plan starts in Isaiah 2. If you listen to Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for, why is that going to happen? Because out of Zion, city center Jerusalem, where the palace and the temple were. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's why Jesus wants them in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus wants them in Jerusalem. We could also turn to Micah chapter 4, verse 2. Micah 4, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It all starts in Jerusalem. That's why he wants them there. It's prophetic. It's necessary. That's how God's plan goes. And that's then where they're going to receive the Spirit to preach the word that is going to go out from Zion and Jerusalem. Otherwise, it will not prove persuasive or effective without the Spirit. Fourth, fourth, Jesus redefines his kingdom for his witnesses in Acts 1, 6 through 8. Jesus redefines his kingdom for his witnesses in Acts 1, 6 through 8. In verse 6, they ask him, while they're together with him, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They want the kingdom. They ask that, of course, because the kingdom has been the unceasing topic of Jesus' teaching over the 40 days of his post-resurrection appearances. Jesus has led them to a conference, a theology conference, on the kingdom of God. Every talk that he gives is on the kingdom of God. Jesus is the only speaker at this conference. He's filling their minds with an understanding of the kingdom of God from the Old Testament. He's trying to get them to see how it's going to work, how it's going to be restored, what it's going to mean. 
And these last 40 days of kingdom teaching culminated the whole emphasis of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke, as we have just seen, where kingdom language pops up 45 times in the Gospel alone. So even before Jesus died, all Jerusalem was bristling with kingdom excitement because in response to Jesus' ministry and teaching, Luke 19, 11, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Everybody was already thinking that while Jesus was still doing miracles. That's where he told the parable of the minas in the city who didn't want the king to rule over them. That, that parable was about to come true in the rest of Acts. The apostles will be faithful with what Jesus entrusted to them. The kingdom will expand, but the Jews in Jerusalem are going to reject Jesus as their king. For now, though, Jesus' earthly ministry, even before his resurrection, made a lot of people think that the kingdom of God was about to appear any day now. Well, this is, this is it. This is where we get freed from Rome. This is where we get international supremacy. This is where we get our land restored to us. So if that's all, how all Jerusalem was thinking before the resurrection of Jesus, then Jesus' disciples are thinking the same thing all the more after they see Jesus rise from the dead. Jesus is going to liberate Israel from Rome, reunite the northern and southern kingdoms, establish Israel's international dominance once and for all in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about Israel's restoration. That's what they're thinking. But look at how Jesus answers them in verse 7. Now, it doesn't make it into many of the translations, but Luke, narr Luke narrates Jesus' response with a mild adversative. But he said to them, now they ask this, but he said that. He's not going to meet the expectation of their question. He's not going to answer their question as they've asked it. The answer to their question is not for them to know. The way he does answer it is with his own plan for their witness and for the expansion of his kingdom to the end of the earth. So notice, it's not that the kingdom of Israel is not going to be restored. He doesn't say that. Jesus does not say, I'm not interested in restoring the kingdom to Israel. He doesn't say that. What he does say, though, implies that the restoration of the kingdom is not what they think. It's only the beginning. He starts in Jerusalem, but when you follow out the narrative, the Jerusalem elites don't believe Peter and James. They put them into prison. They don't believe Stephen. They stone Stephen. But there is a day when over 3,000 people in Jerusalem do believe. But even before that, there's a restoration of the 12 apostles. It's about to come up in chapter 1. Judas has to be replaced for some reason so that the 11 again can become 12. That is the initial restoration of the kingdom to Israel in Jesus' mind. Okay, we've got a nucleus of 12. Representing the 12 tribes of Israel. That restoration has to take place, the replacement of Judas, before Jesus pours out his spirit on the nucleus of his people. The next stage is Judea and Samaria. Those two regions are not two separate stages, they're one stage. The text literally reads, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all the Judea and Samaria. But that's horrible English, so they eliminate the word the. Understandable, fine. 
But it's really helpful to know that there's a the that unites both Judea and Samaria into one stage of the witness and the expansion. So how is it and why is it that Luke lumps Judea and Samaria into a single the? Well, what do Judea and Samaria represent? Judea is the southern kingdom that stayed with David's line after Solomon died. Remember in 1 Kings, Rehoboam is not a good king. You would not want to be a part of a state where Rehoboam was a governor. He was a taskmaster. Remember what he said? My pinky is thicker than my dad's thigh. He disciplined you with whips. I'm disciplining you with scorpions. And that's the end of the United Kingdom. That's where the northern kingdom Hey, we're not in for that. We'll get our own king up here in the north. Y'all can do whatever you want to do in Judea, but we're not submitting to that. That's the beginning of the divided kingdom. That's the beginning of Judea and Samaria. They divide. So Judea is the southern kingdom, stays with David's line. Samaria is the northern territory that seceded from the United Kingdom because of Rehoboam. Judea and Samaria are one stage then because the preaching of the apostles will gather a single new people of God to unite a people from those two regions of the divided kingdom in order to create one united kingdom, which will be united by faith in Jesus Christ and which will be expanded to include people from the ends of the earth who believe in this same risen and ascended Jesus Christ. The Christians who are scattered from Jerusalem after Stephen's martyrdom, they go into Judea and Samaria, and it's their preaching of the gospel, notice, not the apostles, it's their preaching. It's the preaching of the congregations who are scattered. They go, and it's their preaching that reunites and reconstitutes a new Israel from both the northern and southern kingdoms based on faith in King Jesus, son of David. So in a sense, both Jerusalem and national Israel are being restored but it's in a different sense than the apostles expected. It's not that the power and glory of Solomon's united political kingdom is being restored to the nation. That's not it. It's not geopolitical. It's that a people from both the northern and southern regions of the nation is being restored to their rightful king, King Jesus. The kingdom is being restored, but it's being restored to King Jesus who is in himself true Israel, the obedient son of God that Israel never was able to be. And that restoration to Jesus is happening through the apostolic witness to Jesus' resurrection as proof that he is God's chosen king. The final stage of restoring God's kingdom is the end of the earth. And as the book of Acts unfolds, we discover that the intent of the spread of the gospel is to include men and women of every tribe, color, and culture. The kingdom will be universal in scope because Jesus' reign from heaven is universal in scope. That is by design. The phrase to the end of the earth alludes to God's promise to his servant in Isaiah 49, 6. But it's not just the phrase to the end of the earth that's relevant. It's the intention to restore more than just ethnic Israel to their geographic homeland in Isaiah 49, 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's not all I'm going to do. You think my project is limited to that? No, no, no. I will make you 
my restored people, a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach not just to you, but to the end of the earth. You see that the restoration is for more than just the 12 tribes. And you see that everyone who comes into this kingdom should be looking for other people to bring into that kingdom. Because that's God's heart for the world. Friends, this is what mission is all about. We want to be a church more and more committed to international missions and local evangelism and church planting. That means budgets increasing, people going, people giving and sending, people praying, people hosting and doing hospitality for visiting missionaries, and people developing a bigger heart for seeing the gospel reach other people in other neighborhoods, other communities, other countries. Do you care about that? Jesus does. Every church and every Christian is called to participate in this mission. Depth of understanding should lead to greater breadth of concern for others to understand and believe. So Christian, member of Grace Covenant Baptist Church, do you yourself have a heart for missions like this? Are we becoming a church that is more and more marked by a congregational concern that the gospel goes out from us to more people in more and further places in more and better ways? Healthy churches are both evangelistic towards our neighbors and missions-minded towards the world. We, ourselves, are inescapably witnesses. Every Christian, every person who believes the apostolic witness about Jesus becomes a witness to Christ, himself or herself. You will be Jesus' witnesses, he says to his churches. You will be. A Christian is a missional person because Christ is a missional Christ. And you're not the only one he wants to save. In fact, he saved you to use you to save others. Being a Christian is necessarily, imperatively evangelistic. We are not allowed to not be evangelistic. It's imperative. Now, if you're a non-Christian listening to this kind of kingdom talk, you might be getting a little scared of Christians right now. So let me clarify. Jesus' kingdom is global, but there is no mandate for a contemporary Christian caliphate anywhere in the Bible. We don't believe in that. Nowhere in Acts do you see Christians trying to take over government structures. We Christians testify 
We witness. We speak the truth of Jesus and call people to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. But who suffers for that when we do that? It's not non-Christians. It's Christians who suffer for doing that. Because people get angry at us for calling them to repent of their favorite sins. Now you may feel like, oh, that does psychological harm to non-Christians to talk to them like that. But if you look at the history of the church, it does physical harm to Christians to talk like that. That's what martyrdom was all about. And still is in many places in the world. In Acts and in the world today, it's Christians who suffer for this kind of witness. And in the New Testament, Christian witness never results in Christian nation building. Nowhere is there a mandate or even a model for creating Christian political structures. Jesus' kingdom is real, it's present, it's powerful, but it is not of this world. And it is ruled by Jesus from heaven, not by Christians on earth. This kingdom, Jesus is teaching, is supra-political. It is trans-political, international It unites people of all different colors and cultures without requiring that they switch nationalities. They do need to exchange loyalties. Jesus has to become their highest loyalty, the highest authority in their lives. That means you can't be loyal to your favorite sins anymore. But his kingdom is a kingdom that spreads not by war, but by the word the word of forgiveness of sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that leads to repentance. But if you're a committed non-Christian, if you hear these things and you still hate them, then it's not Christians that you should be scared of. It's Christ himself. Because he will return. And he will set right all that is wrong and opposed to him. Fifth, Jesus promises his power for his witnesses. Jesus promises his power for his witnesses. In verse 8, even though the answer about the kingdom is not what the disciples envision, still Jesus will empower them for their witness to extend that kingdom to the end of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Spirit coming upon the disciples is the same thing as the baptism of the Spirit in verse 5. This is an inundation of power through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, for the purpose of faithful, effective witness to Jesus. Just as Jesus said, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, the Son. So church, this should encourage us. We can and should pray for the same outpouring of the same Spirit on the work and witness of this church so that we see God do wonderful things from our very ordinary teaching and service. We have no power in ourselves to preach or teach or do evangelism, to make converts, to cause spiritual growth in ourselves or others. But we are in good company because the original apostles had no no power in themselves for such things either. That's why Jesus told them not just to go to Jerusalem, but to wait. Wait. Until the Spirit comes. Otherwise, everything's fruitless. And we are dependent on God's Spirit as well. So we should ask for a greater measure of, of his presence, power, and influence among us. I mean, don't you want to see this church grow 
in maturity and stature in Christ? Well, do you pray for it? Do you join us when we're here praying for it? Don't you want to see converts born to Christ through our evangelism and preaching and teaching and corporate witness to the community? Well, only the Spirit of God can do that. Even the apostles themselves couldn't do that without the Spirit. But He's already been poured out at Pentecost. He is available to us for the asking. God is a good Father. Jesus said that even we who are evil know how to give each other good gifts. So don't you think that your Father in Heaven will give you the good gift of the Holy Spirit if you ask Him? Well, when's the last time you asked for that? Because that's his best gift. God is good and generous. He delights to pour out his spirit on his children and on his churches. So let's ask him for more of that spirit. The spirit is what we should be praying for because he alone is the spirit who can produce the fruit of the Spirit, in our lives individually, in our life as a local congregation, and in other people's lives who are coming to Christ for the first time. He alone is the power for Christian living and witness. We cannot live the life of the Spirit in the power of the flesh. Now, again, these are Jesus' last recorded words to the disciples, to the end of the earth. It's the last thing He says to them. This is the business He wants His church to be about This is the phrase he wants ringing in their ears as they see him ascending to God's right hand. This is his commission to you, to us. You will either send or you will go. But you will be Jesus' witnesses. And you witness to him either well or poorly. But Christian, make no mistake, you are his witnesses. So how are you doing at that? Because it's not extra credit. It's what you signed up for. It's what Jesus assigned to you, to us. We are a gospel-thick, gospel-deep culture, but we want to be gospel-broad as well. We need to be more committed to the cause of spreading the gospel to our neighbors, friends, co-workers, and around the world. This promise of power means that we can be more joyful than jaded, more optimistic than pessimistic, more glad than sad, and more inviting than condemning. Sixth, Jesus ascends to reign for his witnesses. Jesus ascends in order to reign for, on behalf of, over, for the benefit of his witnesses. Verses 9 to 11. Jesus has just been teaching for 40 days on the kingdom of God. He also answered a question about the kingdom of God. Now in verse 9 to 11, he ascends into heaven on a cloud. And angels tell the disciples that Jesus will return in the same way he left, embodied on a cloud. So far, so good. Amazing, perplexing, but we got it. But if you were a first century Jew and you knew your Old Testament like the back of your hand, especially the more prominent parts, you would be inescapably reminded of a couple of very specific passages from the Old Testament prophets. 
Because this looks exactly like what happened in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Except here, you see it happening from below. It's just a different vantage point. In Daniel 7, 13, we see a heavenly perspective on the arrival of the Son of Man to heaven in order to receive a kingdom from His Father. Behold, look, get a load of this. To paraphrase, but behold, get a load of this. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages... In other words, to the ends of the earth might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So that is not, at least in the first instance, about Jesus' second coming to earth. It's about Jesus' ascension into heaven. Daniel 7 tells the story from heaven's perspective. It's an arrival story of the God-man king entering into heaven to receive the kingdom of God as a man promised to him by his father. And Acts 1 is telling that very same arrival story to heaven, but from earth's perspective. Acts 1 observes and recounts it as a departure of the king from the earth in order to go and receive a kingdom in heaven. So the disciples see Jesus lifted up to heaven on a cloud Daniel 7, after 40 days of Jesus teaching them about the kingdom of God, he's going to receive a kingdom on a cloud, Daniel 7. I mean, if Daniel 7, 13 to 14 doesn't come to their minds as they're staring up at that cloud, then they just haven't read their Bible recently. Like, it's all there. Kingdom, cloud, son of man, come on. Ringing any bells. after all that teaching on the kingdom. In fact, it's hard not to think that Jesus would have explicitly used Daniel 7 to teach them about the kingdom during those 40 days after the resurrection. And so the ascension's like, hey, watch this. <laughs> he doesn't even have to say anything. He just does it. He's like, yeah, see what I did there? Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is being fulfilled right here in Acts 1-9 because what happens next is the, in the overall narrative arc of Acts is that a kingdom will in fact be given to Jesus in which all peoples, nations, and language would serve him to the ends of the earth. That's getting ready to happen in microcosm, in a little form, at Pentecost when Jews from different countries all over the dispersion hear people speaking of God's mighty works in their own languages. And that in turn anticipates the realization of God's commission to the apostles to take his name to the end of the earth, which they do from Acts 3 to 28. Long story short, the ascension proves that Jesus reigns on the earth on the throne of David, which has been relocated into the heavenly realm so that the throne of David now becomes the throne of God's cosmic, universal, transcendent, heavenly, spiritual, international, multicultural kingdom. It's from there, from the throne of heaven, that the risen, ascended, embodied, enthroned Lord Jesus will superintend the church's global 
witness. It's from there that the risen Christ pours out His Spirit at Pentecost. It's from there that He hears the church's corporate prayers. It's from there that He appears to Stephen in glory. It's from there that He appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. It's from there that Jesus forbids Paul from going into Bithynia. It's from there that Jesus tells Paul to stay in Corinth because He has so many people there to save. It's from there that the Lord Jesus opens Lydia's heart to listen to Paul and to be converted. He's still working on the earth as the ascended, risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is overseeing, superintending the witness of his church. Friends, Jesus is sovereign as king over God's universal kingdom. Even over those like Saul who were acting as his enemies and persecuting his church. And the reign of our living Lord Jesus should encourage you and me in this church still today. Jesus reigns supreme over, over and above every other power and authority in all the cosmos, in every realm, both visible and invisible, in every country, despite whatever political administration is in control or thinks they are in control. Whether those powers are for Jesus or against him, he reigns. And because he reigns from heaven, nothing can threaten his sovereign jurisdiction. We are so easily worried and frightened by trends of the times. Immorality, corruption, deceit, fraud, persecution, suffering, all the rest. And all those things are real. And the early church experienced them even more than we do today, at least on this side of the Atlantic. But the great encouragement is that as real as those things are, the real and risen Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign over all of them for the spread of the gospel through the agency of his churches. We're too afraid. We're too reticent. We're too shy. We're too gun-shy. Oh, what if I say this and da 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 happens? Well, is Jesus on the throne of heaven or not, friend? Is Jesus in control or not? Do you believe this stuff or do you not? You can't be half-hearted if you're going to be an effective evangelist. You've got to be all in. We're too passive. We're too tentative. We're too risk-averse. We're not bold enough. Listen, our risen Savior reigns on the throne of heaven. Jesus sits sovereign on the throne of the universe, over every principality and power, whether human or demonic. The church is the apple of his eye, his bride, his very body. Nothing can happen to us without his permission. And if he permits it, it must be for our good, because he loves us and gave himself for us. So what are we waiting for? What are you waiting for? What are you afraid of? Those who trust in Christ are on the right side of his ascension. So whether we live or die, we are his and he is ours. Jesus intends his ascension and reign to make you a confident evangelist for his name. Do we believe Jesus ascended physically to the throne of God's kingdom in order to superintend the church's witness? Or do we not? 
And if we do not, then we should just shut the doors. Especially if we're not praying for the Holy Spirit to come down and make our witness effective. And what are we doing here? But if we do, then we should be doing more evangelism than we are presently doing. In a more believing way. We should pray for these things. The other Old Testament passage that the Ascension would call the disciples' minds is 2 Kings 2.11 because 2 Kings 2 is the only Old Testament account of an Ascension witnessed by a disciple. This is where the prophet Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind with the chariots. The difference is that was without dying and rising from the dead. So Jesus upstages Elijah. Jesus isn't just kind of another Elijah. Jesus like way outdoes Elijah. The similarity, though, is that Elijah promised his protege, Elisha, a double portion of his spirit. That's what Elisha asks for. But remember the terms. We'll get to those later. The similarity, Elijah promised Elisha a double portion of the spirit. That's what Jesus promised his own disciples, remember? Empowerment by his spirit. When Elisha got that spirit, he immediately demonstrated proofs of it by parting the Jordan River, healing the springs of waters, judging 42 boys who were making fun of him, multiplying the widow's oil, raising the Shunammite son, purifying the deadly stew, healing Naaman's leprosy. Oh yeah, Elisha's got a double portion, all right, of the spirit. And what do the disciples do when they get the spirit? They speak God's word in recognizable languages that they had never learned. Peter heals the man born lame. He judges Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. And many signs and wonders were being done for sick people and demoniacs. Jesus' ascension here and the miraculous aftermath among the apostles recall Elijah's ascension and the power of Elisha as his successor and the heir to the spirit of power and prophecy. Now, you would think that the disciples might be forgiven for staring, right? Like, I think God would be staring too. You would be staring into heaven. You know, these men, these angels, come to them, like, why are you sitting there staring? And I mean, the human response is like, are you kidding? Do you see what I'm staring at? Of course I'm staring. But the angels rebuke them, which to us seems like a little impatient, right? Like, uh, come on, man, give them a break. Jesus ascended into heaven like it's a pretty good show but they say to him this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven now why that question some people say that the angels are trying to get the apostles to get busy witnessing hey you were told to be witnesses to the ends of the earth get to it quit staring at him and go do evangelism I don't think that's it I don't think it can be it because Jesus told them not to go anywhere or do anything until the Spirit comes down on them in Jerusalem. He told them to wait. So why this, what are you staring at? Why are you staring into heaven? What's the purpose of that question? Well, I think it goes back to Elijah's ascension. Remember what Elijah, Elisha asked Elijah for? A double portion of the Spirit. And what did Elijah say? If you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be done for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Hmm. Elisha, the protege, does in fact see Elisha, the prophet, taken up to heaven. And so Elisha does get the double portion of the Spirit. But what's that have to do with Acts 1? Everything. 
the angels are basically saying to the disciples, you saw it happen, so you're going to get the Spirit. You've been watching long enough. You got it. It's coming. All right? Luke himself says it twice for emphasis. Verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. They saw it happen. As they were looking on, he was lifted up. Verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, they see him go. They saw Jesus ascend, just like Elijah, Elisha saw Elisha, Elijah ascend. And so what's the expectation? The disciples will get Jesus' spirit just as Elisha got Elijah's spirit. It's going to happen. But where do they have to get it? Back in Jerusalem, where Jesus told them to wait in verse 4, not outside the city. They can't stay out here on the Mount of Olives staring into the sky with their jaws dropped. That's not what he told, where he told them to be. City center Jerusalem will be ground zero, as Jesus had said in verse 4. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. That's the epicenter for the Spirit. You saw him ascend. Now go wait for his Spirit to descend in the place where he told you to be. But it's hard to avoid the implications of the repeated words, into heaven, into heaven, into heaven, into heaven. I mean, four times, two verses. What's he mean? Well, sometimes in Scripture... Heaven just means sky. But there seems to be a studied ambiguity to this word heaven, right? Heaven, into heaven. This is, is he going into the dwelling place of God or is he just going up into the big blue beyond? But Jesus ascended physically, bodily, not just spiritually. He was just eating with them in that body. And the word into, I mean, to modern ears... This really sounds like the stuff of sci-fi. What is this, a Star Trek episode? A real person with a human body went into heaven. And it sounds like they mean heaven, heaven, not just sky. So how did he do that? Where did he go? Well, this gets back to where we started. Transcendence is real. There is another realm an unseen dimension of reality, an imperceptible sphere, a different domain outside the time-space continuum. Eternity. Heaven. And here we see the boundary between our realm and that realm punctured by the risen incarnate Christ. We make movies about this kind of different realm, don't we? The Matrix... Inception, even Barbie, for crying out loud, is a movie about another dimension. I haven't seen it. I heard that, you know. We make technology that creates a world that we call the metaverse or cyberspace. There is a digital realm that we are very comfortable with. Why? Because we created it and we can use it for our own purposes. But there is a spiritual realm that we are very uncomfortable with because we did not create it and because we cannot seem to use it simply for our own pleasure or for our own purposes. We cannot manipulate it. We've recently been singing a song together expressing wonder at that unseen realm. Come make your wants, your burdens known. Christ will present them at the throne. This world of ours and worlds unseen, how thin the boundary between. It's the world that Elisha showed his servants when they were surrounded by the Syrian army and Elisha encouraged them, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more, are more than those who are with them. 
And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, protecting him. Heaven is part of that realm. It's not fantasy, it's real. It's just another dimension of reality. So the ascension is not something like space travel. Heaven is real, but it is a space and place that transcends the cosmos. You don't get to heaven by saying, go to Pluto and take a right in 800 light years, and you'll get there. That's not how you get to heaven. That's not how Jesus got there. Heaven is not an interstellar place in the cosmos. It's a different realm altogether, a different kind of space. And Jesus is there in that space, physically, bodily, unassailable, sovereign, caring, ruling for the good of the church. Social media and the metaverse impact our lived reality in the tangible world. Do they not? Ask any teenage girl. In a much greater way, the invisible realms of heaven and hell impact our lived reality in the tangible world. There's another realm, and the border between this realm and that realm is made permeable here by Jesus in his body. He goes from one realm into another realm bodily, visibly, physically, with witnesses. But he is seen also to be going to a higher realm spatially. I mean, they see him go up, not sideways, not out, not down. He's going up, which indicates over and aboveness, transcendent reality, transcendent authority, overarching sovereignty. Jesus' ascension to the throne of heaven triangulates every earthly and cosmic being up to Jesus' transcendent authority over this visible realm where we live. I wish I had come up with that word triangulate on my own, but I read something and I was like, man, that's a really good word, I've got to use it. If you want to know where I got it from, I can tell you. But it's true. The ascension of Jesus now triangulates every other part of reality and every other living, re- living being in reality to that supreme transcendent reality of Jesus' reign on the throne of heaven. But friends, this means that if we trust in Jesus, we win. We have an advocate in heaven with God the Father so that when we sin as Christians who trust in Jesus, we have an embodied mediator in our own human flesh with God the Father to represent us. You realize that? That advocate shares your humanity in that realm. After all, Jesus did not become an angel for angels. He became a human for people. There is a human in heaven, the God-man, who is for us and who God the Father recognizes as representing all who trust in him. God the Father has accepted the obedience, suffering, and death of his forever-embodied Son, risen from the dead to reign eternally on the throne of heaven for you and for me and for all who trust in Christ. And so, I want us to confess this faith from the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm going to ask you questions. It's in your bulletin on the handout, and we're going to answer together. 
Because we don't think about the ascension enough, do we? When was the last time you thought about the ascension of Jesus Christ and its benefits for you as a Christian? It probably wasn't yesterday, was it? Unless you read Acts 1. Maybe you did. I hope you did. And this is how we're going to conclude. Question 49. I'll read the question, and then we'll all read the answer together. What benefit do we receive from Christ's ascension into heaven? What benefit do we receive from Christ's ascension into heaven? All together. First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take us, his members, up into himself. Thirdly, that he sends us his Spirit as an earnest by whose power we seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God and not things on the earth. And why is it added in the Apostles' Creed and that he sits at the right hand of God? Because Christ ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church by whom the Father governs all things. What benefit do we receive from this glory of our head, Christ? First, that by His Holy Spirit, He sheds forth heavenly gifts in us, His members. Then, by His power, He defends and preserves us against all enemies. And what comfort is it to Thee that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead, that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the selfsame one who has before offered himself for me to the judgment of God and removed from me all curse to come again as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall take me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for raising... Jesus from the dead and accepting him back at your right hand in the ascension to sit on the throne of your kingdom to superintend the expansion of that kingdom through your witnesses in this church and others like it. May we believe, may we bank on these things, and may we be bold in our own witness for Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.